Our purpose tonight is to understand and comprehend what will keep us going as Christians uh, and faithful Christians of that in the midst of evil and opposition. So why don't I pray to that effect. Father, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be um, glorifying in your sight. And as we come to your word, your precious word that you have breathed out, we pray that you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have planned for us to do and particularly that we might stand firm in the face of evil and of opposition. We pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, are you one of those people who likes the good news first or the bad news first? Let's take a vote on who Who wants the good news first? Who likes good news first? Okay, all two of you. Okay. Uh, so I take it the rest of you, that means, uh, like the bad news first. Is that right? Who likes the bad news first? Uh, some of you didn't put your hand up at all. Are you the kind of people that don't like to hear the bad news ever? Uh, just kind of ignore it, be the, the ostrich. Put your head in the sand, hope it just goes away and it doesn't exist. You want roses and lollipops. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're the man. Uh, that's what they say in business anyway. Um, you just, yeah, some people just want to be jollied along by happiness and niceness and, and that's what they want from church and everything like that. But the trouble is you can't just ignore the bad news uh, because if you do that, you won't be prepared for reality and the bad things may well happen to you even if you were hoping to ignore them and avoid them. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 confronts us with the sheer, stark, unadulterated reality of what life is going to be like as a Christian in this world. And if you were paying attention during the reading just then, you would have heard it's pretty bleak stuff, it's ugly stuff that uh, we face as God's people. But take heart, there is good news, uh, because, because if there's bad news in the Bible, then God's put it there for our good. Because it's his word to grow us, as the bit at the end of the chapter assures us that everything in Scripture is God-breathed and is there to, to teach us, rebuke us, correct us and train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped. So if there's bad news, it's there for a reason and God has given it. And especially so when the lesson that we're being given here is how to go on when the days are dark, when the times are evil and when everyone and everything seems opposed to Jesus and us as his people. How do you continue then? How do you go on? How do you stand firm? Now you can see that's the issue of the chapter in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Continue in what you have learned. Continue in the faith. Continue to follow Jesus. Continue. And what we're told here in chapter 3 is how to do just that. How, How do you go on as a Christian? There's a secret to it, there's, there's a method, there's something that we have to do that will help us go on. And that something, the secret is that we've got to comprehend something. In fact, we've got to comprehend two particular things. We've got to comprehend, says Paul, the times that we live in, and we've got to comprehend where the true power of God really is. And the chapter basically lays out both of those things. It spends a whole lot more time on the first one, on understanding the times that we live in, and we're going to spend more time on that tonight. So don't fear if you think we're only halfway through the uh, the outline. We're actually probably about you know four-fifths of the way through the talk, but you know, we'll get there. So let's start there. Let's comprehend the times that we live in. We are in what verse 1 calls the end times or the last days. 
Now, I'm not saying that because I can read the signs of the times, you know, Russia has collapsed and, and China's on the rise and certain things are happening in Israel and, and if you read the book of Daniel with your eyes kind of crossed and, and you kind of, you know, stand to the left, you can you know, match it up with kind of events in history, you know, recent history. Not because of that. And it's not because I've had some special dream or revelation from God given to me. It's nothing like that. We are in the last days because... Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And all that is left to happen in God's economy is for him to return in judgment. Everything else that needs to happen before God finishes this world has already happened through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. That was God's main, that was the turning point of history, the main thing he was doing. And, and you can tell that it's not some far off distant time that Paul is thinking of because notice what he says in verse 4. He's talking about these last days and then he says, verse 4, people will be treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good, having a form of godliness but denying his power, have nothing to do with them. Now that's Paul talking to Timothy saying, have nothing to do with them. Paul is expecting Timothy 2,000 years ago to be living in these last days that he's speaking of. And when you start to chase up what the New Testament says about the last days, you find out it's not some narrow band of time that is yet to come and we're going to have to wait and we've got to be on the world lookout for who the beast is and who the, the Antichrist is and all those kind of things. Actually, the book of Revelation is about all of history from Jesus uh, rising again to the, to the end of days when he returns. It's, that is the last days and that is what the book of Revelation is describing. And you can see it, for example, if you look at Acts chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17, where at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes uh, and Peter gets up and he says, the scripture has been fulfilled, Joel has been fulfilled this very day when in the last days God's Spirit will come. God's Spirit came and kicked off the last days. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. You can see it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2. In the past God spoke many times in various ways. Uh, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Now it's the writer of the Hebrews saying he is in the last days. Okay, And so we have been in those last days. Now uh, There's a picture of it uh, up here. It's also in your handout, if you see. This is kind of the Bible's picture of reality. It's not a narrow band that we've got to be waiting and looking out for when these evil times are. I mean, it's all this time. Uh, and so the historians are completely right to divide everything between BC and AD. Okay, everything is either before Christ uh, came and there's nothing else to happen other than Christ returns. And so we are from here on in, in the year of the Lord, which is what AD means, Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. It's not after death as uh, they're saying in schools these days. It's, it's Latin, there you go, because they like to speak gibberish. Anno Domini. Okay, and so that is the time that we live between Jesus rising, which started off the, the new kingdom of God, and the inauguration, oh, sorry, the, the consummation when he returns again and ends this world and the elements are ripped apart and he creates the, uh, the new heaven and new earth. Now that changes then how you understand a whole lot of things. And Paul wants us to understand, he wants us to comprehend that these are the times in which we live. But what is it about these last days that we're meant to particularly comprehend about them? Well, it's their character, what they're like. It's the character of the last days. Mark this, he says in verse 1, there will be terrible times in these last days. This is what to expect in these last days, in the days between Jesus' resurrection and his return. 
that there will be terrible periods of life. And that will be the case especially for Christians. It won't be all rosy. It won't be all happy. It won't be all triumph and victory. And verses 2 to 5 tell a very sorry and tragic tale. It's one long, horrible list which describes life in the now time from the first century until Jesus returns. And and when you start to reflect on it and and what it's saying here and, and, and look around you, it's amazing how accurate and apt a description it is because it's basically what our newspaper headlines are every day. It's what our TV screens are filled with. In fact, though I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, I reckon it would be a pretty safe bet if you bought tomorrow's newspaper that you would find every, a story about every single one of the things that are listed here in verses 2 to 5 as a story in tomorrow's newspaper. Anyone want to take me up on it? Uh, Maybe, yeah. But I said I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, so you don't get to stone me. (laughs) It's just an educated guess. Because people, like what it says here, people are lovers of themselves, aren't they? That's the the norm around us. That's the the normal lifestyle. In fact, it's what we're encouraged to do, which is to look after number one. Who's number one? Well, it's me. Not for you. It's you for you. It's me for me, right? Uh, Whitney Houston saying the greatest love of all is to love yourself. It's not to love God. It's not to love other people. The greatest love is to love yourself and treat yourself right. Uh, people are lovers of money. That That's a judgment that could be written across the whole of this country from the 1980s on in Australian commercial life. House prices in Sydney rose 15% in one year last year. 15% driven by greed. Uh they are boastful and proud. Do you think of the Packers? Kerry, uh, sorry, James Packer. Think of the Murdochs. Think of the arrogance of the pop princesses and the rap stars. They are abusive. Think of the football crowd. Oh, I hate going to the football now because it's just so obnoxious sitting there, especially if you're sitting in the wrong area with the wrong colours on, like our church hall wearing a Queensland jumper. Like, who would do that? <laughs> so, like, it... It's actually scary, the threats. That's how abusive it gets. And we hear stories of riots after games and things like that, and it's horrible. Or the political slanging matches where, where our politicians, you know, who are meant to be these upright, moral, uh, example citizens who govern us all and take care of our money and us and our roads and things, uh, the slanging matches. If you ever watch Question Time or... Sorry, or um, any of the parliamentary things on the ABC. It's just abuse, tirades against each other. Uh, in fact, mudslinging is a real art in Australian politics. I think when you go to political um, school, uh, that's, that's what the course is in how to insult the opposition. <laughs> you think of the abuse and crudity that fills our entertainment. He talks about disobedience to parents. And, and there's a massive rise in disobedience to parents. Right? Teens are just out of control. Uh, parents don't know what to do. Uh, the teachers in our schools are going through a loss of... I know some of you are teachers and studying to be teachers and things. That's really tough, isn't it? Kids, how do you manage these kids when their parents won't discipline them? You're not allowed to do anything in the classroom anymore uh, to stop them. Um, and, and the whole thing has happened because the whole society has promoted the cult of the child, where the child is God and you will bow to your idol. 
And it's so discredited the idea of parental authority that it's spilled across all of society. Uh, people are ungrateful. You know, we're, we think the poms are bad. Oh man, you, you, we can whinge better than the poms. We can do everything better than the poms, and we can whinge better than them too. Um, you know, uh, we, we don't thank other people, let alone thank God. We are ingrates and whinges, given to unholiness. The list just goes on. This is the character of life that we have. This is what it's like in our world. Now, it's not our age alone. Uh, I was reading something from 1505, from a non-Christian guy from 1505. He was talking about whether it's better if you're a prince to be loved or feared. And he says it's much better to be feared than loved if you're the prince, the ruler of the land, because people are fickle, ungodly, ungrateful. Uh, while things are going well, they're on your team, but uh, you know, if things start going bad, they'll slit your throat. People are rash and evil. That's a non-Christian can see that in 1505 and, and you can see that in every age. We are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, he says. Not that pleasure's bad, but there is something fundamentally wrong when pleasure comes first and God comes second. When that happens, morality just goes straight out the window, which is what's happened. You just do what you like because, oh, well, who gives us stuff about God? Now, you can see that that's the case, uh, what's in people's hearts, when you take away any restrictions from them and you let them do whatever they want. Uh, a terrible tragedy happens, like the New Orleans um, hurricane a few years ago, right? A devastation, whole city uh, homeless, you kind of sheltering in the football stadium and so on. But there was more devastation than just the storm, because the, uh, the, the pillaging and the looting and the raping that went on by extraordinary numbers of very ordinary people afterwards because they thought, no one can see us, no one can stop us, and they have spent years since and they are still arresting people, for the, you know, ordinary people, for what they did that day because no one was watching. Or when people first move out of home into a university college, uh, you know, into one of the you know, residential colleges or into the mining towns in Australia or when they tour Europe for an extended period of time, you see Australians 10,000 miles from home and you see Australians as they really are in their hearts. A bunch of drunken yobbos sleeping with anything that moves and getting into brawls because that's what's in their hearts and there's no one to stop you. There are no restrictions. And the reason we're not like that before we move out is because we're still just a little bit scared our grandmother might find out you know, and wag a finger at us. See, this is what we are like. This is what our world is like. Now, it's not everyone all the time only doing these kind of things. That's not what Paul's saying. It's rather it's the mood of society that you can see reflected in the media and you can see reflected in people's interests. You can see it reflected in people's internet usage. And you can see it everywhere if you do care to reflect, which is what he is telling us to do. This is what God is telling us to do, to comprehend, to mark these days, to understand that there are terrible times in which we live. But notice he's not just talking about the godless pagan barbarians out there, because in verse 5 he turns to religious circles and perhaps even to Christian circles, because he says these people have a form of godliness but they deny its power. They kind of, you know, they, they even behave religiously. 
And it doesn't take much looking around to see there's an impressive body of religious adherents out there and it looks really good. You know, all, all sorts of people are believers and have faith and, you know, that's wonderful, isn't it? But at heart it's corrupt and hopeless because it doesn't really change anyone or change anything. Or in every census, you know, people are asked what they believe and so on. 90% of Australians or something like that say they believe in God. Really? They, they believe that there is someone who made them and that is going to judge them? Really? 90% of Australians are religious, they say. Just under 50% claim that they are Christians. Really? And yet, are they transformed, living joyful, God-centred and God-glorifying lives? <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Indeed, it's the religious people that Paul really has in mind as far as Timothy is concerned. He's not that worried about the world out there. He's talking about what happens inside churches. He's already had a go at specific people in chapter 1, like um, uh, Philegius, is it, uh, and Homogenes who deserted him. Kind of, They couldn't hack it anymore, and so they buggered off. Uh, in chapter 2, it was Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, who he says teach that the resurrection has already taken place. And here are Christian leaders saying that we don't live in this end time anymore, that we've already gone past the end because Jesus has already come back and returned and done his judging, so you can do what you like. There's no more judgment. Lead, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. And Paul said in chapter 2 last week, those who indulge in that kind of thinking will become more and more ungodly and the teaching will spread like gangrene and it will destroy the faith of some. And of course that kind of teaching that says we're no longer accountable to God spreads like gangrene. That's a pretty attractive kind of spirituality. In fact, that's the, the spirituality that people in Australia say they have, isn't it? God's not going to do anything. God loves us because we're good and yeah, we're all going to be in his place. There's no consequences for anything you do or what you believe or how you worship or even what you worship. And it does destroy people. And it does lead people to greater and greater ungodliness. And so while in chapter 2, uh, Timothy was told to gently correct those who've come under the influence of such teaching, here in chapter 3 and verse 5, Timothy is told to have nothing to do with those kind of purveyors of false spirituality. You don't hug them. You don't engage with them. They are not brothers. They are not you know, in the family of God. Um, don't associate them with them. Don't have anything to do with them. Now, that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Why is it so serious and so stark that Timothy must not have anything at all to do with these people? Because this alternative teachings of Christianity and the other religions are not just spiritually neutral and harmless, like so many would have us believe, the idea that kind of everybody's opinion is just as good as everyone else's, that's rubbish. It's, it's just not true. You know, uh, everyone's opinion might be as good as everyone else's if there's no such thing as truth, but when there is truth in the world, then everyone's opinion is not as good as everyone else's. The opinion that's best is the opinion that's right, and that's the opinion that matters. Now, I gave an opinion on Friday night to a member of our congregation. I was quite sure, and I announced this to this person, that the Wanderers would get smashed in the A-League by Melbourne, uh, and they were going out to watch the game. Now, I'm happy to confess that my opinion wasn't worth a thing. 
my opinion was completely wrong. The Wanderers actually got up and won, 3-1. There you go. So how would you like my opinion on next weekend's horse races, which I know absolutely nothing about? I mean, I couldn't even pick the one thing I do know something about. <laughs> but when it comes to the gospel, we're not talking about harmless trivia. We are talking about matters of eternal weight and significance, things that will either bring you to glory, to life, to forgiveness, and ultimately to heaven if it's the true gospel, or which will lead you to the fiery pits of hell if it's a false one. And so Paul goes on to warn Timothy what these false teachers are like and what makes them so dangerous and so destructive. There's four things he says you've got to note about them, you've got to recognise about them, about false teachers. Firstly, they've got this form of godliness, but they've not got the power. You see that in verse 5. That is, they've got absolutely no power whatsoever to really change people from their hearts. They don't have the power to change lives from, from perverse, arrogant people who are under God's curse to living godly, loving, kind ones saved by God's grace. All they have is the form of religion. They, they sing their hymns and they, they light their candles, they meditate, they bow and scrape, they make a big show of how devout they are, but they don't have the true power of God in them because the power of God is the Spirit of God at work through the Word of God, as we'll see at the end of the chapter and come to soon. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples. I could pick on lots of groups at this period because we'll have got the form but not the power. Um, but let me use an example from Anglicanism so you don't think I'm denominationalist and just, you know, everyone else is wrong and we're right. Let me, let's pick on Anglicans for a minute. In Anglicanism, there are all kinds of bishops and ministers who uh, dress themselves up like they're a cross between Santa Claus and the Mikado all rolled into one who can chant psalms like they are barn owls on heat, mating with each other, who diligently, formally read the prayer book services to themselves in empty churches morning and night because that's the right thing to do, and yet who are basically unconverted pagans. They wouldn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ if they fell over it. And many of them do know the gospel of Jesus Christ and they hate it with an absolute loathing and they rail against it every opportunity they get. And they hate it because it holds them in judgment. Oh, I brought some examples along uh, just to demonstrate. We'll, we'll start far away and get closer to home. American bishop, book, born of a woman, Anglican bishop, okay, saying, Jesus wasn't God, he wasn't born of a virgin, he never did any miracles and he basically trots out a whole lot of stuff from the 1850s, a whole lot of rubbish from the 1850s which is laughable, it's been discredited by any serious historian and yet bestseller, born of a woman. Uh, his later, latest book, uh, Re Reclaiming the Bible because he loves the Bible so much and wants to rescue it from us, uh, in it he says that uh, most of the characters of the Bible are comp imaginary composites or even literary creations like Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. He didn't exist. Judas Iscariot didn't exist. Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman by the well. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. 
Uh, and he presents the Bible as an ever-changing and always-growing story. Oh, isn't that lovely? Yeah, great. Anglican bishops. He's an Australian Anglican bishop. Here you go, uh, Peter Carnley. Uh, here's his book, which he wrote on, upon his retirement, denouncing anyone in the Anglican Church who actually believes anything the Bible says. And he explains in here why Jesus didn't die for your sins, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He even explains why God doesn't isn't a personal being who even exists. God is existence itself, and so we are all God. Right? He, he is basically a pagan atheist. But you should see the pomp of his ceremonies. Yeah, they are. they're majestic. They're reverential. You go there and you think, wow, this is so holy, I'm now in touch with God because listen to the hymns and wow. And Anglican churches in those places are just about dead and nobody's getting saved because that kind of religion can never bring people closer to God. It can only, it can only take them away. It is the work of Satan. It's not the work of God which is what Paul explains back at the end of chapter 2. He says people who teach and believe these kind of things have been taken into the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Servants of Satan. Now, if I think that about Anglicanism, which in its core beliefs and tenets is profoundly Christian, can you imagine what I think about Christian science, about Mormons, about the Jehovah's Witnesses, about the Sydney Church of Christ? That's not the Church of Christ denomination. The Sydney Church is a cult that operates out of Bondi and Sydney City and which is, infests our campuses. Um, or, or the biggest cult of all, the Roman Catholic Church. Can you imagine what I think about them? Whose fundamental tenets are a denial of the gospel. They've got the form of godliness but they do not have the power of God. The second thing he says, they manipulate the weak and the vulnerable. Verse 6, such people worm their ways into homes and gain control to weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now he's not saying that all women are weak-willed and he's not saying that there are no men who are weak-willed. There's lots of weak-willed men. But he's simply noting what has played out in every century since that false teachers tend to play on the emotions of the weak and the vulnerable. And one group that is particularly vulnerable in every society, and the cults all know this and they're easy prey, are young mums at home with small children. They are easy prey. In fact, after I said this next bit this morning, a lady came to me and she said, you described me exactly. They're easy prey because they feel guilt over every little thing that happens. They're always worrying that they're being bad parents. Uh, they're often lonely because they're stuck at home with little people who want to talk about play school. <laughs> uh, they're bored. They've had no intellectual stimulation for some years. I mean, having to watch reruns of Paw Patrol and Peter Rabbit over and over and over. And Mr. Maker. Mr. Maker's all right. But anyway, <laughs> they would drive anybody to distraction. They often feel like they're not a real person anymore and they long to be respected and loved. And so, on the door, God really loves you. Come and join us. And so you think of the, you know, you go and visit the Jehovah's Witnesses 
uh, or the family which operates down at like Picton or the Sydney Church of Christ um, or the, the Branch Davidians, David Koresh and Waco, all those people massacred in the shootout, they were all women. They were his harem. The easy prey to the religious colleagues, they pick on the weak and vulnerable. Third thing to know about them, verse 8, these people oppose the truth. They're active in opposing the truth every opportunity they get, just like Jans and Jambres or Yarns and Yambres, I don't know how you say it, uh, and you think, well, who the heck are they? <laughs> well, it turns out they're the Jewish names for Pharaoh's magicians back in the book of Exodus who opposed Moses uh, in the courts of Pharaoh. Now, their names aren't mentioned in the Bible back there, but uh, they're the traditional names that Timothy and his contemporaries would understand. Uh, Yarns and Yambres, Jans and Jambres opposed Moses. So also, he says, these people will oppose the truth. They will speak loudly and proudly and blasphemously and profoundly uh, like, like those books do. Okay? Naming people and shaming them, you know, uh, from our diocese and things who, who believe the Bible and teach the Bible and say, yeah, they're stupid, aren't they? But fourthly and finally, and here's the good news, in due time, they'll all be seen to be failures and their teaching will be seen to be folly. Verse 9, they will not get very far because, as is in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Everything they say and everything they stand for will eventually be seen for the stupidity that it is. And so heresies come and heresies go. Has anyone ever met a Montanist? You wouldn't have because it was a short-lived heresy from like the second century, you know. Um, uh, you know, anyone anyone reading Barbara Thiering uh, these days? Who's she? Well, she was big in the 90s. She's a lecturer or was a lecturer at Sydney University in the religious department uh, denouncing Jesus and the Bible as uh, kind of made-up stuff from the Essene community and it took the world by storm and the Christians in Sydney were all like, this is the end of the world. Heck, no one can be Christians anymore. <laughs> it's laughable. I mean, it was laughable back then. If you put five minutes thought into it, it was ridiculous. Um, uh, she had this thing called the Pasha Technique where you could you know, read the Bible with your eyes crossed. And it was just <laughs> um, The books are laughable. No one reads them. But at the time, it's like, <gasps> But still, new ones come and new ones go. And Paul says you've got to comprehend that. You've got to understand that. You've got to know that, that the world... It will be like that and, and that the world is like that and what false religion will always do. And you've got to understand it because there's an inevitability that comes from it all. The inevitability is in verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life, therefore, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You will suffer if you take a stand as a Christian in this world. Paul himself has suffered greatly. He recounts that. And Timothy has to understand, and we have to understand, that that's going to be the reality. That if you're going to be living a godly life in Christ, you are going to be constantly swimming against the current, and that's really, really difficult. You'll be constantly holding the world's values and your contemporaries' values in question. You'll be constantly the odd one out on subjects of morality and religion and lifestyle. You won't be pursuing the things that everyone else pursues. And therefore, because you don't go along with everyone else's greedy, shady business practices 
and because you won't go along with the drunken debauchery of their parties, because you won't go along with their religiously impressive but spiritually bankrupt religion, they won't like you very much. And they will oppose you. And you may well be overlooked for promotions. You may well lose friends and even family, as some of our members have. You may well lose your career and your family, as uh, one of the members of our own evening congregation, Phil Mildenhall, has done when he blew the whistle at work and was driven out of Queensland by the people who came after him, who he embarrassed, and then lost his wife through it because she couldn't handle it anymore and she walked away. That is what could happen. And if you care to stand up and call them to account, if you insist that Jesus is the Christ, who has won the battle over evil and who is going to hold them in judgment one day, well, then they'll really hate your guts. They've got to, because the options are either to say, oh, yeah, you're right, and repent, or to say you're wrong and try and stop you. Well, if that's the reality of times, what is going to keep us going in the face of it? Because there's actually something wonderful, something spectacular that will keep us going. One simple fact to understand, and that is that though we might look weak and though we might feel weak in the face of it all, we actually have the spectacular, wonderful power of God at work in us, motivating us and holding us and transforming us day by day. It's not the power to get you fit. You can tell I haven't got that power. Um, It's not green power that will save the environment. It's not the kind of political power. It's not the power which people uh, will recognise very well because it looks pretty dull actually. But it's actually the power of God. It's the kind of power that every politician, every treasurer, every teacher, every legislator wish they could really have the power to fundamentally change people from the inside out. You can see that in what Paul reminds Timothy that he already knows. He's got to comprehend the times, but he already knows some stuff. What does Timothy know? Well, three times he tells Timothy what he already knows. You know, you know, you know. Verse 10 and 11, what did Timothy know there? He knew Paul, he knew his teaching and his lifestyle, and he knew the character of Paul's life. You, however, verse 10, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. See, there's the power of God to enable Paul to respond to these evil things and evil people, uh, not with bitterness and not with revenge, but with grace and love and perseverance that, that wanted to see them come to life in Jesus, uh, you know, even in the face of some of the most violent and the most evil of abuse which you can ever read about. And you can read it in the book of Acts. And the Lord stood with him through it all and enabled him to stand firm. Second thing Timothy knows, verse 14, he says, You know those who have taught you from the beginning. Now, back in chapter 1, we found out who that was. It was his mum and his grandma who were faithful, solid, solid Christians by the names of Lois and Eunice. They taught him, they nurtured him in the scriptures and the love of God, and he could see how God had powerfully worked in their lives too. See, Timothy is close enough to the teachers of the gospel 
uh, to know who they are, to know their life, to know their character, to know they're not just tricksters after your money. So that's one of the problems of visiting preachers and, and going to the big conferences uh, yeah, and having the, the great overseas preachers or listening to podcast sermons and stuff because they may be very impressive but you don't know a thing about them. You don't know their life. You don't get to see how they're living it out day by day. Uh, you don't know if it matches up with what they're teaching. Uh, I mean, I remember the shock. Uh, was it in 95 or 6, I think it was? No, it was, it was later than that, 98, when one of the speakers at Katoomba Convention in January one year, um, a couple of months, the month after he went home, uh, announced he was leaving his wife and family for another man uh, and uh, it had been an ongoing issue for some years and you know, it was just like, and we just had him out here as the big gun preacher that everyone should listen to. That's why you know, you, if you're going to have ministry, it's got to be personal and integrated and, and you've got to find out about the person, it's their life as well as their teaching. But even without knowing the people, there's a final thing that Timothy knows which is the most important thing to know. And that's the famous bit at the end of the chapter. Verse 15, you know the scriptures. Indeed, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. And what are they able to do? What power do they hold? You have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God so that the woman of God, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know the scriptures. You, you know them from me, says Paul. You know them from your family, from mum, from grandma. You, you studied them yourself. And so, Timothy, you know the true power of God by which someone may be saved from hell, for heaven, through Jesus, as they... You know, call on you to know him and to trust him. You know the truth of them and, and you know the power of them. They save you and then they remake you and remould you as they teach and rebuke and correct and train you in the new life as one of God's saved people so you can know what to do. Now, someone was asked me after 8 o'clock church what they kind of learned. So, well, this is what it is. Uh, let's bring out the picture, Ben. Yeah, this is what uh, that's all about. Come on, Ben, there we go. That, that's what he's talking about there in verse 16. That's what the Bible does. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> it, the Bible tells you where to go. It's, it gives you the destination. It tells you the path to follow. That's what it's teaching. It, it rebukes you and kicks you in the butt when you stray off the path. It tells you how to get back on the path when you're off the path. That is, it corrects you. And it teaches us how to keep walking along it and keep going and, and keep going hard. It trains you in righteousness so that you can know God, so that you can know his ways, so that you can be the kind of person who will stand firm and continue in the face of evil. And they are so powerful because they are God-breathed, he says. God is the author of this book. Yes, through humans, but God is the author. These are his words. They are breathed out. You notice when you, you speak, you always speak when you're breathing out. And everyone ever tried to speak breathing in? 
Try it later over supper. It's it's very difficult. That's that's what it means. It's God breathed. His word it comes out on the breath of His mouth. The word that He used to create. The word that He will use to destroy the world. This is the word that He has breathed out in the Scriptures. That's why they're so powerful. This is His clear, powerful, authoritative, sufficient, and supreme word by which people are saved and they are remade for Him and His good purposes. Now, they're not a magic potion. They're not something you can wrap up in a shawl and kind of you know, hold it against your heart like a talisman. You can't, you can't just pin it up on the wall and think, wow, I have this power of God in my life to transform me because it's up there on the shelf, you know, kind of thing. You don't kind of get the effect by doing this. Or, um, you know, I used to think if you put it under your pillow and go to sleep, it'll just sort of, the osmosis will come up uh, through there. Uh, that's, that's not how it works. It's got to be read. Timothy has known from infancy. He studied them. He's, he's talked about them. And they've got to be discussed. They've got to be studied. They've got to be taught. They've got to be understood. That, that's why that's our focus at this church. And it's not other things that we could do more of. Because this is the power of God to transform people. So we can live in this evil world and please God and stand firm. You've got to keep working at the Word of God because it is by studying the Word of God that God's Spirit does His work in your life, enabling you to be bold and joyful servants of God, even when it's hard, even when we're challenged, even when worse things happen, so that we can continue in these last days and continue on as God's people, and continue on as God's servants, continue on as his children, continue on as his soldiers, continue on as his witnesses and as his ambassadors, standing firm and holding out the word of life to a world that needs it and by which it might be saved, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you and we praise you that you have not been silent, but you have spoken your powerful word into our lives. You have given us the Bible by which we can know you and come to heaven and know Jesus the Saviour and know how to live to please you. Father, please forgive us for our failure to grapple with your truth and help us to want to learn, to want to grow to want to know what you've got to say, to understand your promises, to understand the way of life that pleases you. Help us to get rid of those things that displease you. Please teach us. Please rebuke us. Please correct us and please train us in righteousness so that we might go on as your people and continue on, even when it's hard. Father, we long for our world those around us, not to be in rebellion against you, but to come to you. And so we pray for your spirit to go before us and call those you have chosen to come to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus. But help us to keep going even when that's not happening because it is you that does the work. It is your word that prevails. You are the saviour. You are the judge. We thank you that you've warned us what this world is like. We pray that we might comprehend it and not be shocked when we see it, but help us to continue on as your soldiers and servants and children all our days. In Jesus' name we pray, for his glory. Amen.
Pusing.